Hello, my dearest peace lovers and peacemakers. Welcome to another show of Peace Mindedly podcast, where we feature peaceful bridge makers. You know that this is season fourth, and we have a phenomenal program for you lined up to discuss. Before we move ahead with our programming today and our guest, I have a very quick favor to ask you, and that is to please pledge your support to our independent news media outlet. We are independent and we rely on your financial support. Please consider going to goldtoon.com and help us financially. Thank you very, very much. And now about today's show. In fact, the heart of our discussion today is about God. And it's about how God really addressed women in its holy book. I say it's because in the Islamic tradition, we do not attribute any gender to God. It's not he, it's not she, it's not, we say Lord, but it's not any of those gendered uh, distinctions that we attribute to God. It's it, and it's the Rahman, Rahim, merciful and compassionate. So in this book, how God really addressed half of uh, the population and human beings. So how he, how it really addressed women in in this amazing, amazing book. And for that matter, we have someone who, I mean, I, I'm just going to uh, go through the credentials and you're going to see that we have a perfect, the most important guest for this matter. Celine Ibrahim is a faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and Philosophy at Groton School. She is a frequent instructor at the Boston Islamic Seminary. She holds a PhD in Arabic and Islamic civilizations um, from Brandeis University, a Master's of Divinity from Harvard School, and so forth and so on. So Celine spent her time and devoted her time to basically understand what's going on with Quran and with women and so forth. And also she has um, numerous studies on, on the same matter. Her new book, Women and Gender in the Quran, is the book that we are going to discuss. I am so honored to have Celine Ibrahim with us. Thank you so much. And it's a pleasure. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Salam alaikum. Okay, Celine. Yes, as I explained, I'm just going to go a bit personal here and to ask my first question and, and see what could be your, your answer. Okay, so it was Sunday morning. We were at the breakfast table with my family. So my my 10-year-old daughter who claims herself to be a feminist and my psychiatrist husband who is a feminist and it was my dad and my mom. My dad is just, just this gigantic patriarchal <laughs> figure in our family. Anyway, so I explained that, yes, this is what, what I'm going to do, I mean, I'm so excited about the book. I am fascinated and I'm going to talk with this amazing author. And my husband asked, okay, so are you going to ask her about uh, ways in which women have been discussed in the book as half men? 
and he started explaining that yes in the in, in shahada in witnessing uh, it is in quran that two women are equivalent to one man and my daughter started saying this is not right i mean this is islam and how you are addressing this and how you are talking about that and so forth and so on so it, honestly i'm just curious to know uh, in what way god put in 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 this in this kind of circumstances put a shahada or a witness of two women equivalent to a man so why a woman is half man in this circumstances bismillahirrahmanirrahim um, i ask god's wisdom and god's mercy the compassionate in this response the i think your husband might want to go back and read the context actually again because the verse in the Quran, it comes in Surah Al-Baqarah. It's actually one of the longest verses in, in the Quran. And it's talking about when two people uh, make a contract and one of them is incurring a debt, meaning um, there, there's a monetary situation and one is becoming indebted to the other person. And in this circumstance, the, the Quran recommends that if there are not two men who are witnessing the contract, that a man and two women. And essentially, if a woman doesn't wish to testify, should there be a future contestation over the uh, what the nature of the contract was, the amount of the contract, for instance, then she could deflect and defer to the other woman witness. And so this is an example of a way in which the Quran actually gives women a certain protection in the realm of social interactions. So perhaps if a woman is witnessing a contract, she might have a relation to one of the two parties in a contract and having to witness might really put her uh, in a vulnerable situation. You can imagine extortion happens among human beings and the, the Quran is very attentive to the ways in which women in particular are vulnerable to, to physical um, abuse, to, to sexual abuse, all kinds of abuses. And this is one instance in which a woman has a way to defer should she be put into a difficult position. And we know tempers run high over matters of money, and especially when one person becomes indebted to another person. So that's the specific context of the verse. And I think it's very important that we understand verses in their social context and in the social context of Arabia. So in the current era, we might have other ways of recording contracts and ensuring that they are you know, properly witnessed, but in a time you know, before documents were regularly used, before audio recordings, before you know, so many things have, have in fact changed. And I think part of the challenge that I'm not a legal scholar, I'm, I'm a Quran scholar, but part of, I think, the challenge that legal scholars, Islamic legal scholars have today is to think about how our social culture, how our material culture, how our legal systems have, in fact, uh, adapted and evolved over the years. So that's a that's a, that's my short answer. <laughs> yes, short answer. Beautiful, Celine. So we are saying that a Quran is timeless. So let's say that if for the sake of imagination, just the sake of conversation, let's let's think and imagine that if Quran, if the Quran was to be revealed today, would we ever had this kind of verses? I'm going to go back to the book, but very quickly, I, I'm just curious to know if there was a revelation today, 
how the Me Too and everything is happening and Afghanistan and any of those, how, how would we dealt with the, this, this kind of um, scriptures in, in, in the Quran? Let's go back for a minute to the original premise. The guidance of the Quran is um, universal. It can apply in many different cultures and many different ages. But the Quran invites us to think, to reflect, and we have to be able to understand that as the Quran is being revealed, it's responding to the circumstances of early Arabia. It, and many, many verses address specific matters that happened in the life of the Prophet wasallam, may peace and blessings be upon him, and among um, his companions. And so the, the, the Quran is both specific to a time and to a place, and it contains universal guidance. And so what a scholar, whether they're a legal scholar, whether they're a, a Quran scholar more generally, what their, what their task is, is to help explain to the people of their time and place, not only the, the guidance that is timeless guidance, but also the guidance as it pertains to their specific time and place. So yes. that's just a note on the, you know, and, and I, I appreciate your question about what would uh, what would the guidance of the Quran be for the Me Too movement? What would the guidance of the Quran be? And so we don't have to ask the question in a hypothetical sense because it's actually, you know, the, the Quran is there. It's still speaking to us. And that's part of the miracle of the Quran. Yeah, one of the issues, I mean, one of the, my own analysis, personal analysis, that it's mine. Uh, I always think that, um, so it's not a matter of, equality in a way that okay so we, we see this is equal to that one it's not it's it's about being fair and just and sometimes being fair and just not necessarily means to be equal is this really a right or correct argument to put forward to say that to be equal sometimes means not to be fair so part of wisdom is knowing how to put things in their proper categories, right? So human beings as a general species, we, we share that common category. Now we can't ignore the fact that we have different biological functions with regard to reproduction. We're not the same. We are not um, like physically structured the same in this very important way. And so some of the dynamics around rules that the Quran has that pertain to women in a specific way or that pertain to men in a specific way actually have to do with the, this reproductive function. And so I think it's important that we recognize something like political rights. We can very easily say that these should be universal, uh, but then we also have to think, um, I need certain protections because of my function in society, the reproductive function, the way my body is, in fact, very different from the category of human beings that are are male or are absolutely. And this is a very I like the way our discussion goes because the good segue is about some of the protective measures that some of the scholars have taken to stay away from the word feminist. And I think in in a way you are doing the same thing. You say uh, feminine center. 
uh, instead of feminist, uh, Barlas or Vadud, um, Asma Barlas and Amina Vadud, they, they, they are also try to save it from the these political terms. So I wonder, is there any particular reason for that? Feminism has been used in many ways uh, over, over it, the history of this term. And some of those ways have been very hurtful and harmful to Muslims. Feminism often gets co-opted into an imperialist legacy and is used by white women or white Western women or affluent women to um, institute harmful policies that actually are not in the interest of maybe poor women or women from the global south, for instance. And so the term itself, I use it sometimes and I appreciate it. And I think that women must absolutely form networks, must um, advocate for their political rights, etc. I just want us to have a little caveat, especially when we come at the discussion from a Muslim context, to understand that in some contexts, the the ways in which feminism is used can actually harm um, harm Muslims. Yes, uh, can actually harm women in, in general. So on that specific matters, ways that I understood uh, you address women in your book, I mean, your studies that you've considered to address women in your book is basically Shohan argue that in the Quran, women are judged by the moral choices that they are making and not necessarily, and that may really not consider or reconsider their gender distinction and yeah, this to is me a very important point and yes. so i just want to make it clear for your listeners who might not be that um conversant in the, in the quran so the quran mostly ad- addresses oh human beings oh believers you know oh muslims and in that address there's a moral Um, a moral outline for how to live an upright, honest life, and one that is fulfills the human purpose. And that is, has no regard for whether you identify as a woman or a man. And the, um, so this premise is the core of Islam. And when we get into the social sphere, which has to do with being a child or being a parent or Um, in this sphere of of reproduction, that's when we get to very specific rules that deal with the the sexual nature of the human being. But most of the rules that pertain to morality are actually completely universal. Uh, In the book, you are giving examples of Moses and his uh, foster mother, Asiya, or uh, Zuleikha's viceroy's wife and Joseph or Yusuf. Can you talk about these examples of in what way you decided to choose these examples and then and then what is the relationship between moral decision and not attributing their decision to their gender identification? It's excellent that you asked that question. It gives me a chance to to describe the book a little bit so that readers uh, can understand or prospective readers. The I set out to comprehensively outline the female figures as they appeared in the Quran, in the Quranic stories. And in that, I looked at a chapter on sex and sexuality and how women figures were were in stories that somehow depicted them as wives or as um, spouses in some context. And then I, in the second chapter, I looked at all kinds of relationships that 
related to the family. And so I looked at the relationship between daughters and their fathers or mothers and their daughters and sisters and et cetera. And so in this, what I hope to be a comprehensive overview of the different Quranic figures, I was particularly interested in the relationship between Moses's mother, um, may Allah be pleased with, with them, and the, the relationship that is between Joseph, the, who is a prophet in the Islamic tradition, Yusuf, and the woman who tries to seduce him after having welcomed him as a foster child into her home. Uh, in the first instance, when we come to uh, Musa and the mother of, of Musa, we see that God reveals, and the word is, in Arabic um, is the verb that's used, comes from the same word as we would talk about the revelation of the Quran. So we have on the one hand, a scriptural kind of revelation. And on the other hand, we have a revelation to, in this particular context, to the heart of a, of a woman, of a mother. And she's in when she receives this revelation, she is given specific instructions for how to protect the infant Moses, Musa, uh, in the Islamic tradition, from the people in Pharaoh's army who are attempting to kill all of the newborn children of the Israelites. And so she receives this guidance. And I talk in the book about how the guidance comes directly from God into her heart and how this is one example of a, of a way of knowing, of a way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, God um, the Most High, giving a message to a woman figure, and in this case, a mother who is nursing her infant. I could go on as yes. I do in the book, but I yes, think, I you think you were uh, mentioning about um, revealing answer to the person's heart when they are seeking for answer. You know, um, this is not particular to specific people. At least in my own uh, understanding and understanding of the Sufis or many of the people who are really seeking God, when 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 you seek you receive answer. Have you ever had this kind of revelations yourself? Uh, that, there's a lot of, uh, that's a beautiful question. And I want to also address the ones that came a little bit before and say that the, the one of the names of, of God in the Islamic tradition is Al-Mujib, which is the responder. And the Quran says that um, God, and this is God's own voice in the Quran explains that God is the responder to the supplication of people. And that's a promise. And, and so we, we receive all kinds of, you know, there's lots of ways to supplicate and there's lots of ways in which we receive answers. And I feel like in my own personal life that that's one of the things that keeps me very um, strongly grounded and thankfully that I do feel that voice of guidance and it can come in, in many different ways. And sometimes it does feel like an inspiration uh, to, to the heart to do a certain thing or be a certain place or say a certain thing. Um, and, can and you give me an example, is, is Guidance. Give me an example. Yes, uh, well, I'll give you, um, when I was in Egypt, I was studying in Egypt at the American University of Cairo as a university student. And I kept having a recurring dream about the Nagib Mahfouz statue that is in, Nagib Mahfouz is a poet laureate uh, and um, a very 
prominent literary figure for the Egyptians. And I knew where there was a statue and I kept dreaming of it. And then one day I went to the statue and um, nothing happened. And I thought that was odd because it was such a powerful dream. But then on my way back, I met my now husband of 16 years, <laughs> thankfully. Uh, just actually, we crossed, path we crossed paths on the street. And then I had lost, gotten lost. Legitimately, I wasn't faking it. I, I really lost my way. And so I asked him if he could direct me back. And that's uh, actually how we first encountered one another. So that's just an example of a way. And so dreams, uh, and that kind of takes us back to, I never got to answer the question actually about the prophet Joseph and Yusuf, uh, may peace be upon him, and um, his foster mother. Uh, but but in the Quran, we see that dreams are one of the ways in which people can can be guided. So that's an example of my own kind of a way in which a dream kind of led me <laughs> to, to, to kind of... Uh, uh, life partner. Beautiful. I can't help to ask, uh, in the Iranian interpretation of the story between uh, Joseph and Zuleikha, the viceroy's wife, is that uh, uh, Yusuf, Joseph, was not um, like an innocent partner. He was also uh, interested in the woman. And then uh, the, the story goes uh, on. Is this the same thing in Quran? The, the Quran says that she inclined to him and he would have inclined to her had it not be that he saw a sign from his Lord. And so there's, it's, it's suggested that there, there was an intervention that Joseph Yusuf saw something that stopped him from proceeding in the wrong. And there's a, there's a lively discussion in, in Islamic theological traditions about what was that sign? What did he see? You know, how much was he inclining before he saw the sign? And um, I, I think that the, the way in which the, the Quran narrates this story lets us discuss these matters. And you know, the best way, I think, for these discussions to happen is not just to leave them in the realm of the story, but to then think about the story in our own lives. You know, what are the times that we had almost gone wrong, except that we were reminded? And, and where, you know, where do we find those types of reminders in our own life? So, so that's an example of the kind of work I like to do is in, you know, in my hat as a theologian is help people apply the guidance and the message of the Quran to their own spiritual development. Isn't that the beauty of the story or the, just the, the example that you just gave us? You know, through story and through example, we just learn more and understand more. Uh, in my own readings, when I read Masnavi, Jalaluddin Rumi's work, so it's always the same, the same format. So it's a story, then his idea about what's happening and giving the advice or teachings. And I've read Quran many, many times. Is that does follow exactly the same but tries to explain many of those through stories and storytelling one of the stories that has been repeated uh, frequently is uh, god's promise of huris uh, or angels and in your book you say that they are not gender specific so I have two, one um, humorous question and one serious question the humorous question is so how about women do they get benefit of having huri in the or angels? And why would you think that they are not gender specific? 
Okay, there's a lot there and I kind of want to unpack it one by one. And just to the previous question, before I get into this one, I want to say that the last chapter of my book is actually looking at the Medinan context of the, the Prophet Muhammad's life, uh, may peace and blessings be upon him. And I'm looking at the ways in which the Quran teaches social ethics through stories involving women. So if your guests are interested in you know, stories and their connection to teaching moral, moral um, philosophy, if you will, then that's a chapter. Which chapter is this? Chapter. This is the fourth chapter. Fourth of chapter. The book. Yes. Yes. And mm -hmm. I also have a section in the book, obviously, that talks about these beings in paradise. Now, they're, they are described with feminine adjectives. Nowhere is there a word, a woman, in relation to these beings. Uh, we don't, we just have feminine adjectives, which those people who study Arabic understand that Arabic is a language like French, like Spanish, other Romance languages, where in fact, their gender pervades the language. And so a gendered adjective does not map one-to-one -one onto a female being per se. And so what I encourage readers to do is to look very closely at the passages in the Quran that do talk about heavenly beings and to understand that one possible interpretation is that these uh, that the soul itself, because the soul in Arabic is feminine, that the adjective that would describe what the soul becomes in, in paradise, uh, God says in the Quran, that we make them a new creation. And so this, this new creation, it could be perfectly plausible that it is described with feminine adjectives, and that's perfectly consistent with Arabic grammar. Uh, so I'm just putting it out there as a, a possible reading, and I'm really curious how how that falls on, on Muslim ears. And it's it's a linguistically possible reading and I encourage you know, kind of more reflection um, about why we would have had such a gendered interpretation of these, these heavenly beings as being specifically uh, women when, when the Quran does not necessarily portray them in that way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back to uh, your opinion about uh, whether or not you believe women can be prophets. But for the time being, stay tuned with me. You are watching and listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. Today, we are talking with Celine Ibrahim author of Women and Gender in the Quran. I do truly recommend the book because, because of the arguments that puts forward and because of a new and fresh look of this script for English speakers. We are in the production of our fourth season, and we have a lineup of amazing guests. I'm just uh, playing out of my memory, but uh, we talk with Selma Dabag, author of Love and Lust and the Arab Women Writers' Take on the subject. Uh, we talk with Zahra Hankir, a journalist and editor who wrote a book about ways in which Arab women reporters covering uh, conflicts and wars within the Arab nations. And we do have a conversation with Sondra Ja, professor of journalism and communication at Seattle University, who's written a book that <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to recommend to my brother, How to Raise a Feminist Son. 
explains her uh, approach to, to the subject. For this hour, we are talking with Dr. Celine Ibrahim, a faculty member in the Department of Religious Studies and Philosophy at Groton School. She has written extensively on themes related to women and gender in Muslim intellectual history and a public voice on issues of religious pluralism. Ibrahim holds a PhD in Arabic and Islamic civilizations from Brandeis University, her new book, Women and Gender in the Quran. Okay, Salim, one of the issues that I came across was you are talking about Maryam, the Jesus mom. And in a way, in a way, and you all, you're also as much as I understood, you also argue and claim that there was a possibility of having female prophets uh, during the time of uh, this uh, human civilization. I wanted to see how how was unfolded in this book and in your studies. Certainly. So I opened the book with, I think, what is a provocative moment in the Quran where Maryam is the described as a sign for the worlds along with her son and part of that part of being a sign is that she gives birth her her body physically reveals if you will the uh, kalimatullah which is an epithet for jesus in the in the quran and in the islamic tradition more broadly so sometimes we find in academic literatures at least an interesting connection between the way in which, for instance, the Prophet Muhammad, uh, may peace and blessings be upon him, is the bearer of the revelation of the Quran. In some ways, Maryam, her her labor is to bring into the world this uh, kalimat Allah, and kalimat means literally word. So the there's a there's an interesting theological parallel between a bringing of scripture and then the bringing of this human being who is a sign. And of course, we know, those of us who speak Arabic, that ayat is in fact both a verse uh, as well as it is a phenomenological sign, something in the universe, for instance, that reminds us of the nature of of God, of, of the divine. So we see this connection in a very provocative way between the capacity of the womb, and in this case of Maryam, to deliver a, a message regarding, you know, for humanity. And so that's one aspect of, of Maryam that's, that's fascinating. Of course, she's the only woman mentioned by her first name in the Quran, and the, the Quran talks about her as being a woman who is unique and set apart in all the worlds. One of the ways she is that is, of course, being in in the Islamic account, the single mother of Jesus. And another way is that she is, in fact, the only woman mentioned by her first name um, in in the Quran. Mm -hmm. The only woman is mentioned by her first name in the Quran. So I'm wondering if we ought to draw a positive uh, perspective of God's uh, um, view on women. What would be those uh, those perspectives? Yes, I think I should actually answer better your question as well about women prophets and is that a possibility? So the Quran it narrates the stories of certain prophets, and uh, in in Arabic, of course, we have different terms for prophets. We'll just talk about them generally under under the category of prophets. But we 
there's a verse in the Quran that says there's some that God has told us about in the Quran and many others that, that God hasn't. And there's another verse that talks about that prophets are what in Arabic is called rijal. And rijal is a very common word that is used to talk about male human beings, men essentially. But rijal also in its in its kind of deeper meanings in Arabic and you know beyond the simplistic level actually can also just mean human being generally. And so the verse in the Quran, those who restrict the meaning of rijal to mean men specifically, then for those people, there can be no women prophets because that is exclusive. But for those who understand the meaning of rijal to mean human beings more generally, the Quran has a lot of discourses about why specifically prophets as human beings are sent. And if we see this being in line with that, there could be a possibility for women prophets. I'm not so much invested actually in this conversation. I don't, I don't think it's quite important. What I think is the more important perspective to take is that God intimately reveals to the hearts of women. And we see that narrated in the Quran that women have an absolute egalitarian possibility for God's rewards. Uh, there's no preferential treatment given to men or women in terms of the, the ways in which, you know, to go back to our earlier conversation, the ways in which people are judged in terms of their character. Uh, and there's, um, there's no barriers to women uh, seeking knowledge and in understanding of the nature of God or the nature of prophecy or any of these other subjects that, that we find. So those are, to me, what's the important question. Very, very important question. So very quickly, I'm going to uh, quickly comment about, about Rajal and Rajal. You just mentioned and ask the follow-up questions and ask a question about the book. But uh, very quickly, so this uh, term that you mentioned, Rajal, came up frequently in Tehran, in Iran, when uh, Faiza Hashemi Rafsanjani and a few other women were deciding to candidate, to proclaim their candidacy for presidency. So one of the arguments they were putting on the parliament was that uh, Quran and the civil code says Rajal, Rajal can uh, nominate themselves for presidency. And according to Quran and Quran description, um, Rajal or Rajal means human beings. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, men. So therefore, they, it was a big argument, um, and they really wanted to challenge the authority over this particular subject and see what would be the reaction. And the reaction, of course, in Iran, which is a very patriarchal society, was having the verdict that no, Rajal, as a matter of fact, means men and doesn't include women. So I'm, I'm very glad that we are discussing this matter here in this discussion. But I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just uh, curious to know, as I follow up on my previous question, that let's say God has some approach and some, uh, some approach towards women. So in, in your opinion, what is a general approach? And is it, is it uh, positive or uh, is it, what, what, is, what, is, what, is, what is its general approach to women in, in the Quran? 
Okay, I, I just wanted to go back to one aspect of the conversation around Rijal, which is mm -hmm. the plural for Rajal. The common conventional word is to say man, but I think what the Quran actually calls us to is to reflection and to understanding the words in, in their context. And so we can have a robust discussion over that. And I think we should. Uh, the other aspect of that is should women have political rights? Should they be able to govern states or govern um, polities or you know, in the US context, run a mosque or something. And so there's our, those are two kind of separate issues, the way in which we understand Quranic language, and then also the way in which we make space for women in political institutions. Very, both are very important. Both are very important. And yet at the same time, interpretation is also important because many, many, many times the interpretation has given to us that made us to believe that what what male, what men are talking about, those interpretations are true. And we are challenging that specific interpretation by having women scholars like yourself and saying that we need to reread and reread those interpretations and, and have a fresh look. So I, I'm glad that that is actually happening within the Islamic uh, discourse. But I, I'm still curious, in your opinion, what is God's general perspective uh, over women? in the Quran. Yeah, that's the theme of the book, actually, right there. That, that's the theme. Um, so if I take, you know, the 300 page work and, and summarize it, I think verse um, 40, verse 13 of chapter 49 in the Quran in Hujarat is very important. It's been used by many women as they seek to articulate the value of women in the sight of God. And it's a particularly useful one because we don't have to interpret. It's pretty plain and clear that, that there is no preference over. And, and in this case, the Quran talks about both race and ethnicity alongside um, gender. And so I think that's also very telling because that's the same way that we, in fact, oftentimes discuss an issue like intersectionality. And so the Quran has preempted that discussion by you know, 1400 years and has told us that the only differences in human beings in terms of in the sight of God is in terms of their, their piety and their God consciousness. So we don't have to guess at what, you know, what is women's worth in the sight of God. It's pretty clear in the Quran. It's pretty clear in the Quran, but it has not been pretty clear when men are interpreting that. So therefore, we need a female interpretations to make it clear, in my opinion. So well, I've heard, I've heard uh, you know, I, so I think one of the challenges that we face is upholding the level of nuance, right? And so I've, just generally speaking, I've heard women very badly like interpret the Quran. And I I've, have a number of men teachers who I respect and think that they do a quite a good job in tadabbar um, and you know reflection and bringing an informed perspective and, and understanding what is the, you know, the, we have the linguistic meaning and the intended meaning and all of these different aspects that have to come together as we're doing the process of interpretation. So, you know, we really sometimes for people to say, and I say this very frequently myself, is I don't know, or there are multiple possibilities for how to interpret this. And I think if more of us as, as you know, committed Muslims could engage in that type of discourse, I think we'd be a lot better off as, as human beings. 
I, I'm very glad about the uh, answers you are giving because, um, because first really explains that you're relying on human intellect or, or your audience intellect and you are not making judgment over male or female. And the other one is as my understanding over the text or over some of the people who are being against men is to just really, really truly understand that, yes, this is a discussion about human beings and it's not uh, any preferences, although we just want to say that the interpretations are in a ways in which that we must uh, include women as intellectual human beings. So then to be fair in our uh, in our discussion about different about the same subject, please stay put with me. You are watching and listening Peace Mindedly podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. We love our guests and we learn a great deal about the subject matters that we discuss with them. And therefore, and in our opinion, there are peaceful bridge makers, bridging gaps between nations, between cultures, between languages, for us to understand uh, ourselves and our surroundings in, in a better way, in a, a fresher look, so to speak. The signature of our show is to ask our guests to close the program by sharing something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion, because we believe that in the time of chaos and disaster and something that the, the, the issues that we're dealing with in, in the pandemic, perhaps kindness and compassion is one of the most important ways that we uh, can help us to go through these difficult times. So I'm asking our guests to share uh, anything you would like to, about peace, about kindness and compassion, other than reading the book. Women and gender in the Quran is something that we should consider very seriously. But other than that, Celine, what is your take on peace, kindness, and compassion? I'm going to go to a story in the Quran that talks about the Queen of Sheba, who is known in popular Muslim culture as Bill Peace. And in this story, she receives a letter from then King Solomon, who's also a prophet in the Islamic tradition, calling her uh, to, to Islam. And uh, the letter ostensibly is also a military threat that if she does not um, you know, come to Islam, then, then King Solomon will come and invade her, her territory. And it's a fascinating story. And I, I talk about it at length in the book. But I think the one reaction, and, and this goes to the fact that here we have in the Quran a female who is a queen and a political leader, and she asks her people what she should do about the letter and, and her advisors tell her definitely go to war and they kind of encourage her to, to take that path. And instead she takes the path of peaceful diplomacy. And, and so I think the ultimate peacemaker in the Quran, if we were to look at the archetype of a peacemaker is in fact the queen of, of Sheba. Um, so that's just a, you know, a thought, uh, this wonderful example of a woman ruler. Uh, and then I just want to add something for your guests that uh, oftentimes we could focus on peace in the peace between nations or peace between in the family. But I think it's also important to keep sight of that aspect of peace within the self. And so a soul at peace, a soul at rest is one that has realized its true uh, human nature. And you know, one of the ways we do that as Muslims is by, by contemplating the Quran. 
Absolutely, and inshallah, keeping peace within is very important. Thank you very much, Celine. Uh, Celine is the author of Women and Gender in the Quran and scholar, author, and theologian. It was a pleasure talking with you, and God bless. Thank you. Khuda Hafiz. Assalamu alaikum.